India and Nepal have announced a slew of projects with what Prime Minister Modi calls the hit formula of highways, highways and transways. Uh, during this visit by Nepal's Prime Minister Prachan, his first official visit during this tenure, but the question remains, do big brother dynamics, border sensitivities, as well as continuing concerns over China's role, still stall India and Nepal's plans from hitting Himalayan heights? Hello and welcome to Worldview at the Hindu with me, Sohasini Heather. Now this week we're going to look at, uh, take a close look at one of India's oldest, deepest, but possibly its most complex relationship in many ways with Nepal. As Prime Minister and Communist leader Pushp Kamal Dehel or Prachand, as he's known, visited Delhi. So why was this visit by the Nepali leader significant? Remember, this was Prachand's fourth visit as being a Prime Minister of Nepal, the first during this tenure, but this is his third tenure. Uh, he's had short tenures in the past from 2008 to 2009 and then 2016 to 2017, cut short each time. Now, apart from the Treaty of Transit, we'll tell you about, the two sides also launched five projects, six MOUs for new projects uh, as well. As a leader of the Maoist uh, movement in Nepal and of the Communist Party, Prachand was originally seen as close to China. In 2008, he broke with tradition and he made his first trip abroad to Beijing. However, on this particular visit, he made it clear Delhi was the first uh, capital on his visits abroad. So listen in to what he said and the number of projects, whether it was railways, whether it was uh, roadways, whether it was integrated checkpoints or of course power transmission, the joint vision for power between the two countries that were announced. In our meeting today, we discussed the ways to further strengthen cooperation in diverse areas including trade, transit, investment, hydropower development, power trade, irrigation, agriculture, connectivity, including air entry routes, railways, bridge, transmission line, expansion of petroleum pipeline, construction of integrated check post, as well as cultural and people-to-people contact. In that Nepal heat formula, HIT, highways, highways or transways. मैंने कहा था कि भारत और नेपाल के बीच ऐसे संपर्क स्थापित करेंगे कि हमारे बॉर्डर्स हमारे बीच बैरियर्स न बने ट्रक्स की जगह पाइपलाइन से तेल का निर्यात होना चाहिए साझा नदियों के ऊपर बीज बनाने चाहिए नेपाल से भारत को बिजली निर्यात करने के लिए सुविधाएं बनाई जानी चाहिए फ्रेंड्स आज नौ साल बाद मुझे कहते हुए खुशी है कि हमारी पार्टनरशिप वाकई में हिट है एंड प्राइम मिनिस्टर मोदी देन सेड ऑफ कोर्स दैट ही स्टिल होप्स टू टेक दिस रिलेशनशिप टू हिमालयन हाइट्स नाउ इंडिया एंड नेपाल्स टाइज हैव ऑलवेज बीन यूनिक फॉर अ नंबर ऑफ रीजंस एंड आई वांट टू मेक दिस पॉइंट बिकॉज़ समटाइम्स वन डजंट एक्चुअली लुक एट व्हाई रिलेशंस बिटवीन टू कंट्रीज आर हिस्टोरिक or why they have uh, this particular traditional relationship between them, particularly for the kind of neighbors that India and Nepal are. For a landlocked Nepal, India that joins it on three sides, remember, uh, has always, they've always seen social, religious and community exchanges, as well as, of course, intermarriages, what used to traditionally be called roti beti ka rishta, uh, amongst even the erstwhile royal families on both sides of the border. 
India is more than 20 times Nepal's size. In fact, about 22, yet no country, and India is part of that, has attempted to occupy Nepal or colonize Nepal. Uh, it's a largely peaceful border between them of 1,770 kilometers. Now, this makes it even more special, particularly after the 1950s treaty, India and Nepal have an open boundary. They give each other citizens near national treatment. Uh, so, Nepalis are allowed to travel and work in India. Indian rupees are freely used in Nepal as well. Uh, the two countries also honor each other's army chiefs as a sort of uh, special military relationship between them. Then, India is Nepal's largest trading partner. It's the highest source of foreign direct investment. It provides transit for almost Nepal's entire third country trade. And it's almost 100% of petroleum supplies actually go through Nepal. Uh, India is also the third largest source of inward remittances for Nepalis sending money home. This is after Saudi Arabia and Malaysia. So the question remains, if it's all so great, where do the problems lie? Where are the fault lines? And what were some of the issues that didn't get discussed in that expansive meeting between the two leaders? One, India and Nepal have a boundary issue, particularly over areas of Kalapani and Sista. Now, despite an agreement in 2014 to resolve these, officials have barely met even once on the issue. In 2019, India then published a map that showed the contours of Jammu Kashmir. This upset Nepal deeply as the map seemed to reassert India's claims on Kalapani, on Sista uh, and other areas at the boundary. Uh, Nepal then hit back in 2020 by passing its own map and a constitutional amendment that placed the Nepali version of the map in the national symbol on its currency and all official communication. Things got very rough between them. So this time Prime Minister Modi, when, uh, 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 when speaking, said that the boundary issue would be resolved in the spirit of cooperation, uh, but actually the issue itself didn't make any headway. Another controversy has now arisen after the inauguration of the new parliament in Delhi this week. That includes a mural of India. It includes Nepali areas like Lumbini. Um, of course, it is a depiction of the past, but there were comments made by certain ministers about how this was India's showing its resolve towards an undivided India. Former prime ministers of Nepal, uh, Baburam Bhattarai, K.P. Sharma Oli, have all raised the issue now. Uh, they wanted, in fact, Prime Minister Prachand uh, to raise it as well, but apparently it didn't come up. Now, second big issue between them has been that Nepal has long demanded a revision of the 1950 friendship treaty between India and Nepal. Uh, Nepal has always seen this as an unequal treaty. It wasn't even signed by the leaders of both countries. Um, but despite many promises, India has so far not moved towards talks on this. In particular, the acceptance of an eminent persons group, an EPG report, as it's called, that suggests the changes that should be made to this treaty uh, have not even been accepted by the government. So that treaty just, uh, the report just languishes uh, unlooked at, and that's been for nearly a decade. Third, in recent years, since Nepal signed an eight-point infrastructure agreement with China, uh, joined the Belt and Road Initiative in 2019, remember India has been against the BRI, uh, with a number of Chinese projects coming in and increased presence of China in its political sphere as well. India has tried to counter these with a slew of its own projects, uh, completing existing plans as well. The government has also put restrictions on purchase of power from hydropower projects in Nepal built or financed by 
by Chinese companies. In contrast, uh, Beijing's role in trying to unite the two communist factions of Prachand and Oli in 2022, I'm getting past a lot of history here, that failed. Uh, India has, in contrast, actually kept a more uh, low-profile and more inclusive role in Nepali politics in the past couple of years at least. Uh, but even so, India's border trade blockade of 2015 uh, over the Modi government's opposition to Nepal's new constitution still rankles particularly amongst the Nepali establishment. That became a major breaking point between the two countries that are otherwise so close. Fourth, while the two sides have discussed rail and road connectivity, Nepal has been upset because of a lack of its ability to complete air connectivity. It wants India to allow air access uh, through places like Janakpur, Bhairava, Nepal Ganj and Mahindranagar for flights, you know, coming from India so as to facilitate international flights, uh, particularly those that are coming in from western Nepal to the two new international airports that Nepal is built at quite a cost in Bhairava and Pokhara. Now, both of these have been built by Chinese companies. It is unviable to use them without this Indian permission. So that's another place where the two have not actually had any kind of discussions or uh, forward movement. I spoke to Nepali author, business consultant and columnist Sajeev Shakya about the importance of Prime Minister Prachand's visit at this time and what got left unsaid. And I began by asking just how important the visit was and how the slew of projects announced, the transit treaty for power that could take Nepali power to Bangladesh, the inland waterways, um, have actually been received in Kathmandu. See, uh, whenever a prime minister goes to India, or even when the kings went to India, you sort of want to get the optics right, as I've been writing. You want things to seem that you have achieved. But uh, what is important is not the announcement, because we keep having these announcements, but uh, there is that sense of mistrust. There's a sense of doubt. So well, whether these things would actually translate into action and whether something tangible is going to come out, there is still a lot of apprehension. But definitely from what we expected would happen during this trip and what has emerged, I think we can say that okay, it's, it's, uh, it's better than what we would have now, Sajib, Prime Minister Modi, of course, said that borders should not be barriers to the relationship. But just how much are border sensitivities, including this latest row over the parliament mural in Delhi, uh, seen as the block to India-Nepal ties? I think it is to a large extent because I think if we look at uh, from the both the sides, whether hanging this uh, new map, uh, the Akhand Bharat map in the parliament, uh, you know, or the, you know, sort of having that pointed map out of Nepal. I think uh, maps and boundaries across South Asia become a big tool uh, for political messaging. Uh, so it is taken pretty seriously because I think, and especially in the days of social media, uh, it does attract more eyeballs and more attention than before. But having said that, it is important also to uh, resolve these issues with formally. I have been always a few uh, sort of opinion to say that, you know, boundary issues exist with you know, countries practically in every country in the world. So how do you resolve it uh, in an amicable way? And we also have uh, some good precedents of uh, the resolution of the boundary between Bangladesh and India, you know, that is being resolved. We look at discussions are going on on formal platforms between 
resolution of boundary between Bhutan and China. So, so I think we have to figure out ways of formal mechanisms to resolve these boundary issues rather than making it political rhetoric. And I think in that sense, I think Nepal has also failed over the years of not taking this as a formal issue, but rather continuously leverage this as a political tool. And I think that's, that's going to be very important. Yes. And of course, the two sides have weathered some fairly big storms in the past decade. The blockade of 2015 we were just speaking about, uh, and then the maps and constitutional amendments in 2020. Tell us what you think is really needed for India and Nepal to sidestep these landmines and really make a generational shift for ties. Yes, I think if we look at the Nepali leadership, it is of a certain age who have their own uh, you know, sort of uh, lives in the past. And if you look at in India, most of Nepal specialists are people who, you know, have, you know, sort of people who have experience on Nepal, so not necessarily who So there is a new India that is emerging, as I've been writing, it's about investments, it's attracting global investments, it's attracting global talents. It has, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's trying to assert itself as a leader of the global south. So how does Nepal understand that? At the same time, in India, people need to look at uh, Nepal, where Nepalis are now in 180 countries, globally mobile, uh, traveling across the world with the demographics of 70% under 40. So it's, so, so how do we build that? And I think that's one. The other is that the, the discourse around India, Nepal, has always been with the two capitals. And that has been my biggest issue. If the discourse has to come down now, it's a federated Nepal. So how does Mithila work with uh, Bihar? Or how does uh, Province 1, Koshi works with uh, Bengal? Or how does Karnali work with Uttarakhand uh, and UP? Those are newer relationships we have to carve out where discussions are happening between Biratnagar and Calcutta, Biratnagar and Siliguri. And, uh, it's happening between Surkhep and uh, Simla. Or you know, Surkhep and uh, So those are new ways in which we have to perceive these relationships, and uh, and also to say that uh, there is a complete shift in how people perceive what is neighborhood, how people perceive uh, your uh, tourism destination. So if you look at Young Indians would want to go to Switzerland, go to Thailand. They don't want to come to Nepal like earlier. And young Nepalis, the same thing. They are not want to do go to uh, Delhi or Kolkata. They want to go to another place. So, 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 how do we reintroduce the two countries? And uh, and both the countries have gone through tremendous transformations in the past few decades. And especially with Nepal as a federal democratic republic, two elections gone, a new set of uh, people in the parliament. A new, you know, sort of voices emerging in politics. So I think it's just more people-to-people interactions. That's where I feel this should be the emphasis. The politics will uh, sort of uh, uh, manage itself if there's the foundations of people-to-people relationship are strong. Because we should not forget that in the 50s, 60s, the politics was equally complicated between India and Nepal. But then the people-to-people relationship, the foundations are very strong. That helped the relationships uh, to continue in a certain manner, and that's that. Those are the lessons, perhaps, we need to continuously learn and execute. And finally, one has to ask how much China is really a factor in India-Nepal ties. Um, off late, China's reputation seems to have dimmed a little bit, especially after what was seen as political interference in Kathmandu. 
Is all of that to India's benefit now? China is asserting itself not only in Nepal but throughout the world. Uh, it is the, the, it's an investor has its own ways of dealing with soft power. Uh, it has more tourists going into different countries. So it's an, again, it's a new China. We need to recognize with a leader who has tremendous mandate and is going to stay for a longer period of time, has vision of articulating China's leadership in the world in 2050. So one is we need to understand who is this new China. But especially on Nepal, where there has been interferences, but China has also realized, like other countries, that Nepal has never been very uh, sort of welcoming to foreign investors. So a Chinese investor faces the same issue as a U.S. investor or an Indian investor. And, and China, China is an investor per se. You know, their geopolitics is based on investment, business, trade. And so they have been very disappointed. Uh, so we have had, if you look at all the agreements, uh, if you look at, uh, you know, sort of nine agreements that were signed, uh, the projects under BRI, Nepal has not moved much. Like Nepal has not moved much on the Indian project. So uh, as far as China, I see is that as long as the Tibet issue does not flare up, they are not too bothered. They feel India is closer to Nepal to monitor on a day-to-day -day basis. And India has larger issues at stake. As the Chinese say, Beijing is too far away from Kathmandu. So as long as the Tibet issue is, you know, so does not become a big thing and does not become an irritant, I think China does not want to go beyond. They have tried during the MCC part, they have tried trying to unite the left parties, but they have seen that it's very difficult to work with Nepali politicians because they don't keep their word, as they say, you know, and they find it very difficult to engage. Sujeev Shakya there speaking to us from Kathmandu, but of course he's a frequent visitor to India and we'll tell you about his books in just a bit. But let me get you the worldview take on the India-Nepal relationship. While tradition, religion, cross-border marriages powered India-Nepal ties of the past, today's relationship must be powered by trade, infrastructure, power and energy agreements, as well as working together to build Nepal's capacities in IT, in research and development, and the future, rather than by simply blocking engagement with Chinese projects in Nepal, India can find more inclusive ways to bring about a new generational change in this very close relationship. Talks on revising the 1950 treaty with Nepal in a manner that India has actually been able to do with Bhutan in 2008 would be the first step in showing that commitment. So let me get to the worldview reading recommendations. And I have quite a few because we have not dealt with this issue as much in the past. Uh, the first book right up top, I'd say, is Kathmandu Dilemma, Resetting India-Nepal Ties. It's one of the most comprehensive, modern look at ties between them. My former ambassador to Nepal, Ranjit Ray, he was there during some of the most momentous uh, visits by Prime Minister Modi to Nepal in 2014, then the earthquake, then the blockade. So he saw it all a close-up. So I would really recommend this book. Then three books by Sajeev Shakya, actually. The first, Unleashing the Vajra, Nepal's Journey Between India and China. Uh, this is written really looking at the trade of the past, the roots of the past, and now the present. Uh, second book on the same lines, Unleashing Nepal, Past, Present and Future of the Economy. This is purely on Nepal by Sajeev as well. And the pandemic years. Uh, these are... Uh, Columns written by Sajeev Shakya in the Kathmandu Post, a uh, column called The Other View, 
uh, that is really worth reading, particularly about the latest events in uh, Nepal. Uh, then there's a book called The Great Game in the Buddhist Himalayas, India and China's quest for strategic dominance. I think I've spoken about this before when it came to Tibet, when it came to Bhutan. This is by Funchok Stobdan, who's from Ladakh. Uh, another book, very controversial in India, called All Roads Lead North. Uh, Nepal's Turn to China by Amish Raj Mulmi is a Nepali author, uh, but he explains uh, in his book about the choices Nepal is making right now. They're not all committed though. Coping with China-India Rivalry, South Asian Dilemmas has been edited by Si Rajamohan and Harnaik Sheikh. Chapters in the book on Nepal by Pramod Jaiswal and then by really veteran uh, expert on the relationship S.T. Muni well worth reading. This is, of course, a book I've spoken about in the past because I've written a chapter about the India-Bhutan relationship, which might make for very good reading alongside the rest. Uh, then there's India-Nepal relationship then and now by Dr. Krishna Kumari. It looks at the need for the revision of the 1950 treaty, other irritants in the relationship. It's a newer book. It's perhaps not as well uh, edited and published, uh, but it has a lot of information. Uh, then there's a book which is iconic and it is from 1992. So what you'll be able to see is how far the relationship has progressed, but also how many of the same irritants remain in the relationship. This is also by Professor S.D. Muni called India-Nepal, a changing relationship, as I said, from 1992. Turning to the Maoist rebellion and that period, the revolution is a book called Lost in Transition, Rebuilding Nepal from the Maoist Mayhem and Mega Earthquake. A more up-to-date book by former diplomat Kulchandra Gautam, he's Nepali as well. A book which is an autobiography called Hisila, From Revolutionary to First Lady by Hisila Yami. Remember, she was one of only two women in the Communist Party, the Maoist uh, Politburo. Uh, she eventually married uh, Baburam Bhattarai, the Prime Minister, who became the Prime Minister of Nepal. He was educated in India, of course, at Jawaharlal Nehru University. Then there's a book called Maoism in India and Nepal by Ranjit Bhushan. Uh, while it talks a lot about, of course, Maoist uh, movements inside India, you can see the part about Nepal and particularly profiles of Prachand, of Bhattarai and of former Prime Minister Oli. Uh, then there's a book called Nepal Nexus, the inside account of the Maoists, the Darbar and New Delhi. So again, on Nepal-India relations, but seen from uh, the Maoist point of view uh, by Sudhir Sharma uh, from that period. Uh, then a book called Blood Against the Snows, The Tragic Story of Nepal's Royal Dynasty. And of course, we haven't spoken about this um, uh, part of Nepal's history and what it meant for the India-Nepal relationship, the massacre of the royal family, the relationship with the royal family. Uh, this is a book by Jonathan Gregson. And remember, it was written just one year after uh, the royal massacre that killed practically the whole family uh, by the man who then became king for just a few days before he passed away uh, as well. Um, and Jonathan Gregson has also written a book which was which came out around the same time, which I really do recommend, called Kingdoms Beyond the Clouds, Journeys in Search of uh, the Himalayan uh, uh, Countries. And, and this is particularly interesting. It looks at Nepal and it looks at Bhutan. Uh, and it's a travel book in many ways, but a very interesting look at traditions as well as history and the present. So we hope you enjoy reading all of these books, really immerse yourself in this neighboring country and join us again here on Worldview. Please also do like and subscribe to the Hindu channel on YouTube or watch us on our website www.thehindu.com. From the team here, thanks for watching.